0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For four decades, Michael
1: Wilbon has been one of the major figures in American sports journalism, first at The Washington Post, and now, of course, at ESPN. He's written and spoken incisively, not just about games and athletes, but about the role sports plays in our society. A native of the south side of Chicago, Michael's also a brilliant storyteller, whose own story is well worth hearing. We sat down last week just as the NBA Finals were coming into focus. Here's our conversation. Michael Wilbon, what a thrill to see you uh, here, especially this podcast is going to drop the day the nba finals begin oh wow so it's this is like getting the pope on christmas (laughs) eve
2: (laughs) don't don't put the pressure on me (laughs) being that good but it is (laughs) you know it is uh to carry the analogy to a preposterous length it's a religious time for basketball for basketball hurts you know in terms of getting up on the finals and and when the Penultimate, ultimate, you know, uh, series sort of start. It's great. It's just great. To, to. Although to me, you know, it's always a big letdown when the conference finals
1: are over and you don't have a game every night. Right. That is heaven right there.
2: It is. It is. I like the early rounds of the playoffs just because of what you said, doubleheaders every night and sometimes doubleheaders in the second round. But
1: let me say, uh, we will get to that, but they can hear you talk about this stuff any day of the week. And I want to talk about you For two reasons. One is you're really one of the uh, premier uh, sports journalists, and I'd argue journalists uh, of the last half century. That's one reason. The the other is that you're a son of the South Side of Chicago, which to me is a great distinction. Uh, And I wanted to start there. I wanted to I wanted to to uh, I want you to tell me about growing up on the South Side. Tell me about your folks. And how they got to the south side.
2: Well, that's where it began. I mean, start at the beginning. I, um, I grew up in the neighborhood that is called West Chatham.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right the Dan Ryan, you can hear the L uh, in the middle of the night and early in the morning. You can hear it even though it's two blocks away. And my parents are typical of parents of that age, born uh, during the Depression. Well, just before the Depression, both Mm -hmm. 1925 and 6, typical in that they fled the South uh, as part of Black folks' great migration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, from Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, God knows where else, to, you know, the big cities in the North um, and the Midwest, uh, Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Chicago, New York too, but in my family's case, Chicago they each took the train north seeking to get out of away from the worst of the Jim Crow south because we're talking my mother was 14 the same age as Emmett Till yeah and she got on a train and she went to Chicago because one of her uncles had said she could live with him and and the aunt and go to high school, and go to school go to school all the time not drop out for planting season like my father had to. Your uncle and aunt were in Chicago. Already. In Chicago on the South mm-hmm. Side in Bronzeville, Forty Seventh and Langley, Forty Twenty Nine South Langley. Uh huh. I remember my mother's address, and uh, so my father came. He was more like nineteen, so he came, you know, like five years later. But they both they both were seeking this life that millions of people like them sought. Millions. Yeah. And uh, they came to Chicago and stayed there and met there. Uh, She's from Tennessee, a little town called Trenton. He's from a little town in Georgia called Washington. You drive past his hometown, the exit for it, on the way to Augusta National. But it's small-town Southern people, farmers, sharecroppers. You know, they grew up in Chicago, was was uh, heaven. Just let me interrupt something. It struck sure. me when
1: you mentioned Augusta National, you know, that he lived nearby. Mm-hmm. And and I'm thinking, man, the distance between those two places oh. where your father grew up and how he grew up and yeah. Augusta, Natch- it could have been a million miles.
2: Yes, David, it was. And I've been, you know, I've been to Washington, Georgia in my life in the car where you're just driving and I got relatives to point out where I was supposed to exit. And yeah, it's like, you know, being on the South side, growing up on the South side. I'd never been to Wrigley Field. My, my, my father refused to take us to Wrigley Field, but it was light years from 82nd and Wentworth where I grew up.
1: On the South side to the North side. Park yeah. Addison.
2: It's, it's, it's light years. So yes, yes. For my parents, light years. And, um, so yeah, so they moved to the South side. They worked. My mother was a teacher. She went to Loyola, to get her master, she went to teacher's college, undergrad, what was called teacher's college, now Chicago State. My father did not finish high school. I don't know that they would even meet each other today.
1: Yeah.
2: Dad didn't finish high school, uh, but he was 100 times smarter about math and science than his son, the journalist, (laughs) and helped me get through it. uh, And had no academic decoration at all, you know? But was a salesman, right? A salesman, Yeah a route salesman. So it was more mm-hmm. physical working for Dean's yeah. Food in Chicago. Uh-huh. And uh, so yeah, so it all started on the South Side. You know, David, I hear about the dangers of Chatham and West Chatham even and Inglewood. and Yeah. You know, he- here's one thing I do know. It makes me sad, but I know it's not new. It ain't new. The Chicago you and I know was always violent. It was mm-hmm. violent before Capone. It's always been violent. And I tell people when they're on the way there to write stories or do stories and broadcast part of the business. And I tell my friends, they say, what can you tell me? I got to go through the story in Chicago and violence. I said, whatever you do, understand that this ain't new. It was bad then. It's bad now. I grew up dodging, not literally, but navigating the streets of Blackstone Rangers and the disciples and all of that. I said, don't make this sound new, because that's Chicago's, that's what we've always had. We've always had, in 1919, when the riots broke out, they broke out because somebody hit a kid with a rock who was out in Lake Michigan. That's that's how it started. And Chicago was diverse enough, diverse enough. There were enough black folks in Chicago where people weren't acquiescent, where there was going to be violence in return. Yeah, It's always been violent. It's a violent place. I know I love my hometown I know what it is and what it isn't but it's not new the, the what what is new is a lot of the neighborhoods
1: that you grew up around as much as they struggled then they're sort of depopulated now they've lost a lot yes. of the, yes. and 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 yes. the just saturation of guns is yeah. uh is is some and that's made the violence more extreme and uh more difficult and these guns that they're carrying now they shoot 50 rounds you know uh, yeah. a, a magazine and yeah but your Your point is is well taken so so I know that you you said you were bad at at math and and that Word. stuff, but you but you had a gift for writing from the beginning and a love for writing from
2: the beginning. Was that from your mom, or how did that come about it's interesting i i I think it's just storytelling. My father is one of twenty children, oh my God, yeah, and that's what you call employment in the deep south. For my grandfather, because I don't think he was allowed to hire. And my grandfather was the son of slave and slave owner. Uh, My grandfather was born in 1886. I go, the generations stretch a large way for for my family in a hurry. And my mother was one of 11. And you get those big families and you got great storytellers in those things. Right? And I was always the kid who didn't want to be at the kid table. I wanted to be listening to the people who told the great stories. And I know it comes from that, um, and those great storytellers, and none of them, the, the 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 family business for those of us in that next generation after that grandfather I told you about, and then our parents. There are lots of journalists. Carol Simpson,
1: yes, was a cousin of yours, right? Yeah. Yes.
2: Um, we got a couple of first cousins. I have a couple of now cousins of the children of theirs, who are producers at CNN and ABC and. Uh, some smaller local uh, stations. So this has become, storytelling became as close to the family business as anything.
1: And the other thing that I guess was very rife in your home was uh, like, you know, you obviously you you do a show every day in which you talk about sports. Apparently it started at your dinner table when you were a kid.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My father was different than other fathers at the time and that he said it was okay to argue back with him. That get you. I get you a beat down in a lot of households <laughs> in the nineteen sixties when I grew up. Um, my dad said you could argue with him, you could even do it at the dinner table, but you had you your reasoning better be backed up. So if you were gonna say that Ferguson Jenkins was as good as Bob Gibson, his favorite pitcher, yeah, Andy Koufax, you better bring it. You'd be told to shut up only if you had nothing to offer. And so, yeah, so we argued about sports and politics. From my earliest memories of sitting at dinner with my parents and going back and forth with my father, seven years old, eight years old.
1: One of the arguments that you kind of hinted at a couple of minutes ago was you said he wouldn't drive you to Wrigley Field. Right. Somehow this child of the south side of Chicago, uh, home of the Chicago White Sox, uh, became a Chicago Cubs fan. And I think you gotta explain that.
2: Well, and I came home one day when I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old, maybe a little older, and there's a guy sitting on my front steps talking to my father, which in segregated Chicago then was a fairly big deal, and he didn't have his leg on. Oh. Yeah. Bill Veck. Yes. Like, why? How does Bill Vick know my father? He couldn't have known him. He had one of the great characters in the history of major, of baseball. Yeah. In all the sports in America. Yeah. So my father was a White Sox fan. And what made it for a guy from Georgia, what crystallized it for him was he tried to go to Jackie Robinson's first game at Wrigley Field in 1947 and was turned away. Huh. My dad was turned away and he vowed that day in whenever it was, April or May or June, Of 1947 that he would never set foot in Wrigley Field He would never go And I was a Cub fan because Again, Chicago was the most segregated city in America Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly the most segregated big city in America A city so virulent in its segregation That Martin Luther King talked about it publicly in disbelief But my heroes lived with us, David Ernie Banks and Billy Williams and Fergie Jenkins They weren't living in Stars of
1: the Cubs, yeah
2: they weren't living in Northbrook. They weren't living in Evanston, but they were living on the South side with the rest of us. And so did Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Just like Jack Johnson and Joe Lewis before him. You lived where we all lived, which was the South side of Chicago, which is why it's not a coincidence the South side of Chicago produced Carol Mosley Braun and Barack Obama. It's not, there's no coincidence. Um, you know, that the South side of Chicago probably still hasn't been studied Appropriately, thoroughly, you know, I'm sixty five years almost of it of that history in the making. Yeah. and I love the place, but so they lived with us. The Cubs players lived on the south side. I know where they yeah. live. Fergie Jenkins, you know, has put us in his car and said, "Get in the car. What are you doing, Walking around and drop guys at home?" And Ernie Banks and Billy Williams said, "Hey, get what are you doing?"
1: Er- Ernie Banks sponsored your little League or something he didn't did. He? Ernie Banks yeah.
2: Ford was on the back of the jerseys. Uh huh. Some of uh-huh. them, half uh-huh. half of them, and Alderman William Shannon. They they both they co-sponsored ah, my from le-
1: the seventeenth ward. I remember
2: seventeenth ward. We don't have a little. League, I don't think we have our little league program, David, without Ernie Banks, which I yeah. have thanked him for to his face.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, I got I I got to do that.
1: I I have to tell you just as a you you have a show called Pardon the Interruption. So you got to pardon mine. I'm but happy I, to have yours <laughs> But uh, Ernie Banks came to the White House when I was working there, and I had some baseballs. One of the great gifts of working in the White House is you get to meet your sports heroes as they pass through. And um, I had an autographed baseball from Willie Mays, and Ernie Banks came and Beats. said, ah, oh, Willie Mays, the greatest of all time. And Willie was my f- favorite player of all time, and I think he was the greatest of all time. And I said, I was trying to be polite. I said, well, Ernie, I bet you people say the same thing about you. And he said, nah, I wasn't even in his league wow he said he said when the other play when when Willie stepped on the field every other player was excited to see what he was going to do that day that's, a, Which, that's it was really 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 an amazing uh, moment for you now another guy who lived on the south side was a guy named Wendell Smith yes who was a legendary figure in sports journalism of his generation uh tell me about him and whether he was an influence uh on you David unknowingly he was
2: because I Explain who he is to everyone. Okay, Wendell Smith was both a columnist and at the time that I was growing up, that column was in the Chicago Sun-Times, and he was also on WGN. Yeah, Which means when people come up to me and say you're a pioneer, and I'm like, please stop. Please stop. Because there have been people 50 years before me, 60 years before me that did this that looked like me. So I was, I grew up, I didn't grow up with The very real reason that many people who look like me grew up saying, I didn't see anybody who looked like me. I did. Mm -hmm. Wendell Smith. I didn't know I was following him. I wasn't following him. But I grew up, he was on in my house and I read him.
1: You also knew that you could do this. That, you know, this is what
2: Barack Obama,
1: when when Michelle Obama asked Barack Obama why he thought, what he could do that no other candidate could do, because she wasn't that keen on his running back in 2000 and he said uh, well one thing i know when i raise my hand there are millions of kids who are going to look at themselves differently so it's important to have these role models
2: to say you know what i could do that yeah i tell you what i tell you what is at the time even more important and then this is going to sound weird but this is more important it wasn't that i thought i could do it because he did it was that i never thought i couldn't do it
1: yes right 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 it was
2: never out never it was never an heart. issue
1: yeah, it was never, it was an, never
2: issue. an issue. Yeah. So the two people that I grew up, and and then, yes, later, as I got to be a teenager and I thought, I have some sort of talent for this, the two people that I grew up watching and reading and not knowing, and now I got to know one of them, were Wendell Smith and Brent Musburger.
1: Yeah, who was a great Chicago broadcaster at the time. And
2: a Northwestern person and, and, a, yeah. and a, you know, more than just a sort of an idol and a role model to me now, a friend. But I grew up – it never dawned on me that I couldn't do that. Yeah. Wendell Smith was doing it.
1: Now, we should point out that Wendell Smith's place in history, aside from all the things that he did oh, in breaking barriers, was he helped break the greatest he barrier great of all because he – yeah, exactly. He was the guy who went to Branch Rickey, the owner of the Dodgers, and said, this is the guy. This is the guy who can integrate baseball, Jackie Robinson. And then he followed him for several years as Chet Robinson went through that
2: experience. He and the great Sam Lacy, among others, but those, you know, I got, Sam Lacy worked and lived in Washington, D.C., so I got to know Sam Lacy and be in his company as an adult and as a writer for the Washington Post over decades. He He and Wendell Smith, they would be in a car driving from somewhere north, and I bet that trail... If Wendell started in Chicago and, and picked up Sam Lacey in Washington, they drove because they, they had to know where they could go and where it was safe to be and where they could stop and get gas in and the get South, a sandwich yeah. and lay their heads if they did it on the way to spring training. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, they helped integrate baseball. They were very large in that Branch Ricky, as you just mentioned, leaned on them heavily for their intimate knowledge of negro league ball players and who was going to be that right person who could handle it who could handle it and and both them among others but both of those men very prominently said jackie Robinson.
1: we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. You went to Northwestern. You went to journalism school there. I was really pissed when I read that you had applied for an internship at the Chicago Tribune because three years before you did, I did. I got to work at the Tribune. I started two oh. days after college, and that was the beginning of my uh, career. My, uh, you know, I became a political writer there yes. and so on. Oh, I uh, but 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 uh, you applied for that those intern that internship, and the Washington Post was smart enough to hire you. Uh, the Tribune did not. That was the Tribune's loss. Tell me what it was like when you arrived at the Washington Post in the in, what around 1980
2: or so. Is that summer of '79? Yeah, and Yeah. all I wanted to do, David, I delivered. I was a paper boy growing up. I don't know how many people who listening to us will know what that means anymore, but... Or what a newspaper is, but yeah. yeah well, yeah, barely. <laughs> I grew up delivering 92 newspapers on Wentworth and LaSalle in my neighborhood, house to house. And I, I just wanted to... All I wanted to do was write for the Sun-Times or Tribune. That's all I wanted to do. That, that was my goal in, in my life. I delivered those papers. I wanted to work for one of them. They both turned me down. And I didn't even get to really grieve it over it because the Post and Newsweek both accepted me. So I was, you know, buoyed by that. And I got to the Washington Post in the afterglow of Watergate. I got there when the people greeting you, you know who our luncheons, my luncheon speaker was, as a the first day, summer internship, June 13, 1979, my intern speaker for the class of 20 interns was a man named Bob Woodward. Yeah. And then within three or four days, I'm sitting with Ben Bradley because he came in the sports department to meet the two interns. One inter- of the great editors of all time. And, yeah, so I, I went there at a time where the post was still in the afterglow. Robert Redford would come, Bob Woodward.
1: Yes, Play Bob Woodward in the movie. Visit
2: Bob Woodward in the newsroom. <laughs> And so this is nineteen. Who's bigger than Robert Redford in nineteen seventy nine? Nobody. So he would come in, and the women, particularly, would just crowd around Woodward's office and wait till Redford got there. But then I I got to know the actual people, not the actors, and the people who comprised, in my view, and obviously the New York Times reporters and staffers that argued with the greatest newspaper staff of its time. Well. Listen, there's a whole generation
1: of journalists who were inspired by that group of reporters. Yeah, yeah. And not just Woodward and Bernstein. I mean, I was a political reporter. David Broder was... Broder, only guy, yeah. A huge uh, role model for political reporters. And But you also, you joined what would become, and you were one of the reasons for it, one of the great sports staffs of all time. I mean, really really stellar group. In fact, I spoke to a guy named Jonathan Martin, who's a political writer. He was with the Times and now he he writes a column for Politico. And I told him this morning, I'm going to be doing a pod with Michael Wilbon. And he said, and he went nuts. And he said, I was inspired to journalism by the sports pages of the
2: Washington Post. And I promised
1: him, I'd tell you that. So I, I fulfill that promise.
2: You know, it means something. It means m- more than any contemporary observation because, yes, you're right. I joined a staff that had Tony Kornheiser and Thomas Boswell and Dave yep. and, you know, so many others. Barry Lords and these names don't necessarily mean anything to anybody. And George Solomon was a sports editor that, you know, uh, he was the guy who I guess had an eye for talent because even when you come down. Years from that, David and you, David Remnick, Pulitzer Prize winning yes, colleague, of course, and Sally Jenkins, and there were so many legendary people. Yeah, and by the way, the internship class of that I mentioned 20 interns Lucian Perkins and David Remnick and Isabel Wilkerson. I mean, Will Wilkerson, people who I'm right, I am like the least of. I am, (laughs) I you know, these the the decorated people, I think we had, you know, so Bob said to us, Look. There's some talent in this room. There's 20 of you, probably only three or four of you Mm -hmm. be able to stay and join the post as full-time staff writers. I think it wound up being 12 of us stayed.
1: Yeah. This is a little like my own story at the Tribune. You had that
2: kind of staff at the trip. I learned how to read reading the newspaper. Yes, it started with the sports section when I was five years old. I'd stare at the words until some of them made sense and then more of them and more of them and all of them. But I grew up reading the Sun Times and Tribune. My father didn't yeah. want the Tribune in the house, so I had to read it outside. I had to read it on the front porch. That was the other newspaper from outside. It,
1: it was by the time I got there, it was a little more progressive it, it, than yes, it, it changed,
2: yeah, you know, yeah. completely. And so, but you know, when I was a, a little kid, your colleagues were my were the people that inspired me. I know he was at the Daily News, but you must have read Royco. Uh, well, that. I can't even mention Royko in any other company because Royko is, that's Michael Jordan. Yeah. The great, no, he was the H.L. Mencken of his time,
1: the greatest daily columnist. Greatest columnist.
2: Time. I tell Tony that, a New Yorker, he didn't want to hear it. And I'm like, you can talk about all these other people if you want. Nobody, no single person in New York had the impact of Royko in Chicago. Yeah. And I've lived East long enough to know and become friends with some of the great, great writers, newspaper writers, daily. People in New York City, but nobody had the impact of Roiko on politicians and absolutely people bought
1: the paper to see what Roiko yes. said that day. Yeah, and in his heyday, he wrote six columns a week. Yes, every day, and and and, and at least three of them were literature. <laughs> I mean, it's just like it was un- unbelievable to yeah. produce what he produced. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we we can geek out on Chicago journalism. I want to talk about your uh, early years. Uh, at the post, and you covered page over the course of your thirty years at the post, you covered all the sports uh at one time or another uh before you became a columnist uh but uh, I want to talk about college basketball in the around the city of Washington, yeah in that period because you covered some of the most uh notable talents of all time uh at Georgetown, where Patrick Ewing was. Uh, you you covered the ACC, so you saw uh, Michael Jordan play. Yes. Uh, talk about that. Talk about that period there, and I want to ask some uh, about uh, specifically about Jordan, and then about uh, someone who may have been as great as Jordan. Yeah. Had he lived?
2: Yeah. Well, that sticks with all of us who are old enough to this day. Len Bias, of course, we're talking about. But that, so, in, let's just take the year 1980. Three, I'm mm-hmm. still just picking 83. So, or 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 the period, say from 82 to 84. Mm-hmm. So, in one, I could hop in my car on any night. I could leave the Washington Post newsroom, and if I left a little early, I could go to Charlottesville and see Ralph Sampson, only the three-time player of the year. There's never been anybody three-time player of the year since. The great Ralph Sampson down in Virginia, Charlottesville. Um, I could. Go to College Park and see Len Bias.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I could go to Georgetown and see Patrick Ewing. I could go to Annapolis to see David David Robinson.
1: Robinson. Yeah, and
2: he would have been a freshman maybe in '83 because he graduated '87. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see George Washington had a terrific team then with a pro named Mike Brown, who people don't don't shouldn't confuse with Coach Mike Brown now, but 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 went to the tournament. Catholic University, Howard University, they all had teams that played and competed and at some point went to the tournament. Um, And it was, wow, it was heaven to just cover college basketball and any given night in the coaches, Lefty Drizzell and and John John Thompson and Gary Williams. Gary Williams was at American University long before Ohio State and then Maryland. Gary Williams is winning 26 games at a little place called American University. Let me ask you about Michael Jordan. Obviously
1: I I was lucky enough to live through the 13 years that he yeah. graced uh, the courts in Chicago and I saw the whole miraculous story unfold, but I've been I've thought ever since about what is it that makes him in my view the greatest of all time, but what is it that makes the players who are a cut above, great, because it's not just physical talent. There are a lot of physically talented players. There's something else. Oh, yeah,
2: there's lots else. The signature way that he played, the way he looked. I mean, you got to remember, Jordan introduced three things to the American culture through his brilliant basketball genius that we weren't accustomed to. He introduced something as elemental now as I sit here with, a shaved head. He wasn't the first person to do it. My God, Sonny Liston had done it 20 years earlier, but he was the first to do it and sort of make it stick that everybody else then began to do it. Yeah, I want to be like Mike. Yeah. The style of the day, he introduced a shoe. Yeah. Word and Magic were arguably as talented, and they neither had a shoe. Julius Irving did not have a shoe. Jordan had a shoe. Some of it's t- timing and luck of the time. And certainly for me, and like you, it was the luck of being born when we were. But Jordan, it, it's the greatness. It's the, the will. It was the, my God, the intimidating nature of it that other of his peers were intimidated. Yeah. You
1: know, Michael, when he stepped on the court and you were a fan in Chicago, you just assumed you were going to win. You knew when Michael Jordan was on the court yeah, that you were going to win that game. And even if you were behind by 20 points, you knew you just figured he would figure out a way, yeah, to drive them
2: back. And he had great players around him. Well, he had great players, they weren't great when he got them. And this is one of my arguments, you know, against the LeBron is the GOAT thing. And LeBron, to me, there's a Mount Rushmore of basketball, and on it, without any chance for removal, are Bill Russell, Irvin Johnson, and Michael Jordan. That fourth spot, sometimes. I can talk myself into it being Kobe. Sometimes I can talk myself into it being Kareem, but most of the time I think it's LeBron. But, but what 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 LeBron LeBron didn't have some of the things Michael had. I remember sitting at a game game seven against the Pacers, and Michael Jordan only played three game sevens in his career. There's a great line out there when somebody says they got um, LeBron in an interview and Michael in an interview, and they asked LeBron, who's been in a bunch of Game 7s, so what's it like to be in Game 7? And Michael and LeBron tells him a long answer. Michael says, I'm sorry, what's Game (laughs) 7? He won two. He beat the Knicks, and he beat the Pacers in conference finals, but he was never in a Game 7 in the finals. Right. Uh, And he lost one. He lost one to the Pistons, famously. But I remember Game 7 in Chicago, and they're losing to the Pacers by seven with about two minutes to play. And I, I'm freaked out. We're going to lose this game. And I'm a sports writer. I'm supposed to be freaked out. I'm supposed to be sitting dispassionately <laughs> covering the series and the game and the event. And I say out loud, oh my God, to lose this. And Rick Tellender looks back at me. Rick, sports writer for the uh, Sun-Times. Yeah. We asked both, Chicago Sun-Times and then Tribune. Tellender looks back at me and said, and he, I know what he was saying. he goes, is he still out there? And I said, that's right. You're right. Never mind." And of course the Bulls went on to win that game 7 and then yeah. win, a, win a championship. I think that was 97. They're their fifth. But yes, Jordan had things that no, none of the others had. I you know, I
1: asked Bill uh, Bill Walton did my podcast once which, which which was an experience. I love Bill. It was like <laughs> r- it was like riding a bucking bronco to try to sure. keep him in the within the lanes here, but uh but I asked him about this because I was in the crowd when Bill Walton I hitchhiked down to Chicago. I was a student in 1973, the, the, uh, the, the final four. It was the, the championship game against Memphis State. And Bill Walton scored 44 points and hit 21 of 22 shots. He had like, you know, double-digit rebounds, I think eight assists. It was the greatest single game I've ever seen anybody play. To this day. Yeah. And I said to him, do you get nervous? I mean, what are you thinking? And he said, nervous. He said, I live for that. He said that was the most fun in those. And it's like the ability, how, how many players in that position where everything is on the line really want the ball with everybody watching? Uh, and, you know, these guys demand it. Jordan, you know, Walton, I'd put in that category. And you named some of the others. It is a mental thing. I'm just obsessed by it. But listen, talk about Len Bias. Len Bias was a contemporary of Jordan's. Played at Maryland, was drafted by the Boston Celtics. He was going to be the
2: next big thing in the NBA. He's going to rival Jordan. Kobe and LeBron didn't really have each other because they never met in the finals. They met in the regular season. But Bird had magic, of course, and Russell had wilt. And there have been some great rivalries in the NBA, which is particularly made by rivalries. And for those of us, and I got to cover Lynn Bias, he was the second overall player chosen. But Lynn Bias was maybe the most talented of the draft. He was 6'8". He had the prettiest jump shot I've ever seen to this day. Mm-hmm. I saw him play against Jordan. I saw Lynn Bias dunk once at Field House in College Park, and he landed on the shoulders of Brad Doherty. Da- Brad Doherty, 6'11". Yeah. He landed on his shoulders. And Mike Krzyzewski says... Immortal coach of Duke. Immortal coach of Duke says that the two greatest players he ever saw in his time were michael jordan and lynn bias and that's the consensus that everybody who saw lenny play came to and of course died tragically two days after the draft of a what was what we now believe is a cocaine overdose when you heard that
1: news what did you feel I've read
2: some of your columns. I was on a plane on the way to L.A. I was taking a few days off after the draft, and my body was cold. I I just literally, my body temperature declined, and I was cold all day. I flew to L.A., I got off the plane, and I was just no good. I was just no good for a long time, for days, because I knew Lynn Bias. I covered him. I knew him. I'm never going to outrun it, but Lynn Bias— you know there were two great players we never saw at that time, and they both died so young: Lynn Bias and Ben Wilson. Speaking of the South Side, yeah, of from
1: Simeon High School.
2: And you went to Simeon. I could see Simeon outside my window. He got shot. Was shot in an ambulance after answering mm-hmm. the nine one one call. Went to the wrong location, and he bled out on a sidewalk near my home. And those two, John Thompson, the late great John Thompson, told me that. Ben Wilson was the greatest prospect he ever saw. This is a man who recruited successfully Patrick Hugh, first player chosen in the draft. And 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 John Thompson got to see Lynn Bias up close, like we all did in, in locally in D.C. So, David, I, I can't talk about Lynn Bias without getting emotional. It's, I'm never going to outrun it. I'm never yeah. going to get to a place where it doesn't impact me. And if you talk to, say, Jay Billis, who was the same class and people used to get their names confused billis and bias if you talk to jay billis he'll be the same way if you talk to david robinson he'll be the same way if you talk to michael jordan about it he'll be the same way
1: yeah you know there's something so tragic about someone so young and so filled with potential and but uh but i want you to tell your own story you you know you you excelled at, at at journalism, you the, the post made you a columnist. You were gonna leave. They said no stay. Uh and you were a great columnist at the post. Then when you were 49 years old, you had your own sort of profound experience. And I'd really like you to talk about that.
2: Yeah, I mean I you know, I've been running around the country feeling pretty invincible from twenty-one to forty-nine. I was a late late guy, got married at thirty-nine almost. Uh at forty-nine Uh, In January, late January, our son, Matthew, uh, was two months from being born. Two months from being born. And I had a heart attack right here in Scottsdale, right where I am now. Had a heart attack. It was not a massive heart attack. I got on a plane and flew from uh, New York. Left the studio, flew across the country, got here, got in bed, woke up. It was like a Fred Sanford moment for people who are old enough where I'm like, I'm having a heart attack, right? And with hand, your hands over your left side of your chest. Right. That, and that's and and it's, I, I laughed because it was like a sitcom moment. I'm having a heart attack. And I told my wife to wake up. We had to drive to the hospital. So, you know, that sort of was the first alarm to go off, to say you're not invincible, get your shit together. And the doctor sat on the side of my bed two mornings later, 48 hours later, and said, you're never going to see your child, the young boy that's about to be born, baby that's about to be born. You're never going to see him reach five years old if you don't do exactly what I'm telling you to do. Wow. So, you know, I sort of got religion at that point. Um, and I, You know, then, you know, you fall out of it because you go back to feeling you're invincible. But yeah, uh, like a lot of people, like a lot of men, uh, like a lot of specifically men of African American uh, descent that we think if we've navigated part of the world's landmines that we're going to step over them all it don't work that way and so i I
1: was warned and and you also were diagnosed with diabetes as part of the same day same day uh,
2: which is why now like an advertisement i'm wearing my glucose monitor my dexcom my dexcom set i'm wearing that to tell me what my blood sugar is at all times um because yeah because my my mom and grandmother and you know, such we know now such a large percentage of our specific demographic suffers from diabetes, but a large percentage of America entirely. And people didn't know it, don't know it, ignore it, all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, I did for way too long. You know, the older I get and you lose friends and, yes. and so
1: on and, and yes. you know, life is a, oh, life ends up being a cliche. But you realize that every day actually is a gift. And especially, you have
2: a you, your son is still pretty young. Yeah, he's fifteen. I got a I got a freshman in high school. We just finished freshman year, sophomore to be, and I'm yeah. running around trying to go to AAU games, and my peers are laughing at me. Either just dads in the neighborhood who did this fifteen years ago, or particularly my friends in the basketball world, coaches and scouts and owners, and they're like. We did this. Where you been? We did this fifteen, twenty years ago. But you know, he's fifteen, and there's no guarantee. I got friends, as you do, David. You talked about it. We got friends who, over the last few years, we're losing them. A trickle becomes a flow.
1: Yeah. And
2: so I don't like. I'm not. I'm not taking that for granted. And so now, I think he can hit the golf ball further than I can. I'm not. happy <laughs> that. He's definitely. I couldn't beat him in any basketball endeavor. I used to be able to beat him in horse until about. He was 12 and that's oh He's good. He's a good little basketball player. We're going to
1: take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
0: The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them
1: to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education.
0: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
1: And now, back to the show. Did that in any way, that was, I think, a t- couple of years before you quit your job as a columnist at the Post. You'd already, since 2001, been doing your show with Tony Kornheiser yeah. on ESPN. How much did all of that, because you must have been running your ass around the country, how much did the health scare contribute to you saying, you know what, maybe it's time to give some of this none
2: None. I wish I could say I was that smart. I, so I stopped writing the Post column. On December 7, 2010, I can remember the date, and I don't remember anything, because that's my father's birthday. That was my last column. You know, ESPN said to me, we can't have your best work appearing somewhere else all the time. You got to decide. And Do you miss writing? Yeah. I miss writing, but it writing's hard. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. I, I, there are two things I regret not being able to do anymore. I, play, I took music lessons growing up. I can't play Mary Had a Little Lamb. Just went away. I took lessons from 8 to 18. I played Pomp and Circumstance for my own high school graduation at St. Ignatius. And now I can't play Mary Had a Little Lame. And I wrote, I, you know, I was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, which is not a big deal to people like you, David, but in sports where nobody gets that far, that's a big no, deal.
1: That's a big it's a big deal to people like me. It's that a is a big deal.
2: deal. And I, I, you know, I mean, I, I think of myself as a columnist. I'm not. I'm not a columnist anymore. I think of myself that way. Yeah. But it's over, and I have to live my peace with it. I have to live my peace with not being able to do what I once was probably pretty decent. Well, life is chapters, you know, and yes, you, I, you've written. And I'm not good at turning the page. I'm not good yeah, at it.
1: I understand. So
2: I want to ask you
1: about two great figures in sports we lost recently, who both of whom you knew. One was Bill Russell. And the other was Jimmy Brown. And I ask you about them because their greatness wasn't limited to the fact that they were arguably the most dominant players in their sports, basketball and football, uh, during their playing careers, which was in the 50s and and 60s. But because they were a big piece of American social history.
2: Absolutely. I I did not get to know Bill Russell at all personally because Bill didn't really want to be known. That wasn't his thing. I, I could observe and I, I I was tapped into one of the people closest to him and that's John Thompson, as I refer mm-hmm. who played on the Celtics. Uh played, when- was Bill Russell's backup center for yeah. a couple of years and that was yeah. it. And so I got to absorb, if you will, Bill Russell through Coach Thompson, who did let me in a lot. Was intimidated like anybody else by Bill Russell just by being in his presence on the few times I was. And he did talk to me a few times because I was somebody that was okay was okay with Coach Thompson and Coach Auerbach and Red Auerbach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got to know Jim Brown because he wanted to be known. Jim, It was okay. Jim Brown wanted that. And he was not well, afraid. He was a of-
1: movie star after he was there. He a- wanted to
2: be, was a movie star, a successful right. movie star. and And also, I covered the NFL at a time where I was about the only black writer covering the league. And Jim Brown would literally walk up to say, who the hell are you and why are you here? (laughs) You know, and this is long after he retired. Jim Brown retired I was seven. So I didn't, I I remember seeing him carry the ball a little bit as a little boy, but not really. I got to know Jim Brown as Jim Brown of the Cleveland Browns formerly. And oh my God, this intimidating figure. And Jim Brown who could organize anything and tell people to do anything. And I went to, I was in Southern California covering in the aftermath of the Rodney King riots, if you will, if I can call them that my sports editor, George Solomon, wisely, brilliantly sent me out there to make a connection between what was going on and the lack of recreational sporting opportunities for young African-American men in South Central L.A. Yeah. And I went out there, and the night I got there, Jim Brown was having the Crips and bloods at his house. At his house.
1: Gangs, yeah, gang leaders, yeah.
2: This is insane. And so I was able to get in contact with Jim, and Jim Brown... Invited me to his house, gave me directions back in the pre GPS days. <laughs> yeah, I remember. There's no those. cell phones. I had to, he had to call, he'd return a phone call to my hotel room. This is 1991. Yeah. And I drove up, I went there. I thought there would be some uniformed poli- LAPD or personal security or something. These are, We're talking about notorious open gang leaders whose gangs are involved in the burning of Los Angeles. There's nobody on the door, David. Jim Brown said, you will not bring these things into my home. You will not bring your guns and knives into my home, so lay them down. Guess what? They did. They did. Yeah. And If anybody thinks there's an athlete out there with that kind of authority today, you'd be a fool.
1: Yeah, well, let me ask you about that. I I raised those guys because they were, you know, you think about them and Muhammad Ali and some of the great athletes of the 60s who were part and parcel of the civil rights movement yes. of social progress and put themselves on the line by doing it. By the way, I should tell you, Harold Washington, who you remember, the yeah. first black mayor of Chicago was mayor when the bears won the Super Bowl, And he had a big rally for him. And I was working for Harold. Harold said to me, uh, thank God, nobody knows that I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. And ah, I said, you're a Cleveland Browns fan. I know Browns fan. Cleveland Browns fan. Jimmy too. Brown, Jimmy Brown. He said, Jimmy Brown's my guy, and I I so admire him. Uh, so I'm a, a Jim a,
2: Brown and Bobby Mitchell. Yeah, you know that. Look, that was people are talking about America's team, the Cleveland Browns, and then the Cowboys because the Cowboys drafted necessarily people from small black colleges. Nobody mm-hmm. else. Big, 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 big city teams. I don't know that the Giants and the Bears and the Packers were doing that. The Cowboys are doing it more than anybody, but the Cleveland Browns did it. Mm-hmm. Cleveland Browns did it, and the Cleveland Browns were beloved by black America. And so I I get it. You say there's no one like that now, and it leads me to a question. I mean, these
1: athletes are, um, you know, they're they're celebrities, they're marketed mm-hmm. as celebrities, they, they make a great deal of wealth and so on. Um, but, you know, uh, Charles Barkley, who I know you're close to, you worked on yeah. some books with him, and he once said, and it really stuck with me. And he's a friend of mine too. But he he said, you know what? We are not role models. Okay. Yeah. We are not heroes. We are athletes. You know. But don't look. Don't expect us to be. Now, I actually think in in many ways, Charles, the way he he's a the the kindness of the man Very is much. Uh, and the honesty of him is is extraordinary. But, you know, like I think of Michael Jordan, I revere him as an athlete. It was a wonderful experience to watch him play basketball. I told my little boys at that time, guys, watch this. You'll never see it again. This is the Babe Ruth of basketball. But I never expected, I didn't, you know, people, my friend Sam Smith wrote the Jordan Rules. And yes. in that book, he uh, he said, uh, he recounted the fact that Jordan wouldn't endorse Harvey Gantt, who was running right. for the Senate in uh in North Carolina, and and when and and he said, "Look, uh, Republicans wear shoes too." In other words, he didn't want to drag politics into his marketing. Right. Fine. I don't need Michael Jordan to tell me uh, to talk to me about politics. I don't right. need to. But the question is, should we look at these athletes as as? I mean, obviously, the guys we've mentioned, uh, Jackie Robinson and Bill Russell and Jimmy Brown, and I mean they, but that's the exception. That's not the norm.
2: No, and, I, and Charles's point was, don't necessarily make me a role model. Me, meaning athletes yes, in general, yeah. I am not necessarily a role model. Charles very much is. But the, but the point was, I am not automatically one because I'm an athlete.
1: Yeah, right, because I'm great at what, basketball.
2: I'm great at this one thing, and that was... But you know what happens?
1: People want to ascribe to the people who are great... Yes,
2: they do, they, and it's lazy. ...qualities that they don't necessarily have. That's what Charles's point was. That's just lazy bullshit. And you know, the person in in your neighborhood who might be the postman, might be a a, a better role model. Your teacher, right? A clergyman, a lot, any number of people. Some of your uncle, who just goes out and, and and you know earns a living, could be. So, but yes, some of them were very much not just role models. They were central, as you said, David. To they were central to, um the civil rights movement, all of them were central to that.
1: I got to tell you about a conversation I had with uh, president Obama and it was about LeBron James. And like a lot of people, I was sort of put off when he did the whole, I'm going to take my talents to South beach. And they made Brian. that. And, and that stuck with me, you know, as the years went by, I didn't really think much about it. And I mentioned that to Obama once he said, think about this, 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 Kid grew up no father, mother who had lots of problems. He went to the league when he was 17 years old. He is a great player, but he's a great teammate. He's a great father. He gives back to the community. He said, that's a pretty admirable story. That's something to be
2: admired. The changing, the turning of that into something villainous is too bad. And people will say, well, I'm biased than I am because I was involved in that telecast but LeBron James was 25 years old yeah is it my favorite moment no do I find it villainous and something that is regrettable no I find it almost just a footnote it, it's it, was well it, it
1: is a footnote because of everything that he's everything done. he became after that yeah, yeah, yeah exactly exactly it
2: was before that and so there's so many other things he's done it's like like Michael Jordan he, at that point of his life I didn't need Michael to tell me who to vote for. And so that is stuck with him. Republicans were issues too. Where in the meantime, Michael Jordan has now in the last five to 10 years, put his might and that's financial and otherwise behind more programs that have benefited more people who probably identify with being sort of old school South side. I'm using that term advisedly Democrats. That Michael has been completely unafraid to associate himself with all of that. And I've talked to him about it recently, just when he's there are times when he's done things for healthcare. And I've called him up and I said, dude, this needs to be publicized in a greater way. He's like, I don't care. I'm just doing it. Well, that's really good. I'm glad that I raised it and I'm glad that you're you're saying this. So
1: before we go out, I would be remiss, uh, even though I said everybody hears you talk about it elsewhere. First of all, I want you to talk as we're sitting here recording this, we actually don't know who's going to win the Eastern Conference finals. No team has ever come back from three-nothing. There's been brooded about. The Celtics were down to Miami three zip. They're now they've won two games going back to Miami. We'll see what happens. I'm asking you, how is it that Miami, which barely made the playoffs, is one game away from the finals with injured players and you know, arguably a less august, a less impressive roster.
2: Well, I mean, part of the Miami-Boston story has to do with Boston's failings through three games and Boston's inability to play with that signature Celtic style. They, teamwork, they didn't do it. unselfishness. They weren't selfish. It just they took turns. They weren't a team. Mm-hmm. It's a different. Uh, and then part of it has to do with Miami and the culture they've instilled with Pat Riley down to Eric Spolster and Will, and what that means. And Pat Riley's famous for all those things. Yes. And, um, and Jimmy
1: Butler fits in.
2: And Jimmy fits that. Jimmy Butler on draft night, I was there in Chicago. What the, the draft, but it must have been in New York, but I was there because he was drafted by Chicago. Yes. And he was drafted kind of for the sole purpose of getting in LeBron James's face and stopping LeBron James for the greater good of the Bulls, which they couldn't finish off. But Jimmy was, you know, born into that. Derek was a star, and Tibbs was the ringmaster, and kind of, t- a kind of Pat Riley light, if you will. Yeah, Tom Thibodeau. Yeah, Jimmy Butler had that already, and so for him to then have it fully drawn out by Pat Riley in the culture of the Miami Heat, that's what they did. They came, they come closer to maxing out than a lot of teams in the NBA that have more talent.
1: Yeah. Well, they also eliminated Milwaukee, the number one seed in five yeah. games, which was pretty yeah. extraordinary. So last thing on this, the Nuggets, like I am completely transfixed by Nikola Jokic. I've never seen anyone quite like him. Uh, he looks like a big bag of groceries, doesn't really look like an athlete. And yet he's got the best hands, feet and
2: brain uh, of anybody I've seen, you know, in one package. He's the best player in the world. He's the best player in the world, period, right now. Look, I voted for Embiid David for MVP. Now I voted for Jokic th- you know, 3 years ago when he won one of them. I, and so between Giannis and Embiid and Jokic, you can't go wrong. There's no You're right, answer of course. There. Yeah. But I voted for Embiid and now and that's a regular season award. In the playoffs, I know that Jokic is the best player. I loved uh, LeBron's press
1: conference after uh, the Lakers were eliminated, and some reporters said, what did you learn about Jokic in the series? And and LeBron said, nothing. I didn't learn anything. I knew it was
2: great. I just saw that clip today. (laughs) Yeah. LeBron, who's a, you know, because players, when you get a, one of the great things about being behind the curtain with a press pass is getting to talk to players on stuff that's never on the record. Now, that would have been because a camera caught it. But you can just you can be in practice sometimes and somebody will say, What do you think about so and so? I don't know, what do you think about this guy? And you get unvarnished answers about things, and that's the why you go to the gym with of these course, guys. Of course, yeah. And it's just it's really wonderful uh, to be able to have the access to that and to people like LeBron. Michael was great for that. Michael Jordan was great for that at 8.30 in the morning. If the bulls had a shoot around, you got there early. And Michael would ask us too. What do you think about so-and-so? Mm-hmm. And if he didn't like the answer, you were going to be in you going be in for it. <laughs> but it was great because he liked going back and forth, and it still happens. Mm-hmm. I can't show you the text messages, but it happens now. You know, we're both 60 years old plus. And it'll be, what do you think of so-and-so? What? And I will <laughs> ask him as often as I can, hey, what about this guy? And so, you know, Jokic is one of those players that great players like Michael and LeBron. Year, like two or three years ago, they just said this guy. This guy has greatness in him. What? Yeah. 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 He. he you see what he's doing with his body. He's changing his body. Uh, I love what LeBron
1: said. He can see the play before it happens. Before.
2: Sounds like he's talking about Gretzky. Yeah. LeBron or Magic yes. or Burnley, all those guys. And so yeah. So Denver, because of Jokic and Jamal Murray, and they just have. They just kind of have it.
1: Well, let me just say. Michael Wilbon, you are a joy to watch. And though you miss the days of writing your column, you, uh, uh, you, you impart your wisdom in a beautiful way, and you do it w- with real authenticity, which to me is the most important quality a person can have. I ascribe that to your character and to the South Side of Chicago.
2: Uh, well, I hope, first of all, I, I hope I'm worthy of that praise from you. There's a, As you know, there's a kinship among people. From Chicago period and then even stronger bonds when people have had ties to the south side and so that I know that who I am and what I am has a lot to do with all the things I am and you know a great part of that is produced by what happened to me in that city the people I believe in the institutions that are part of me I have an apartment in Chicago I come back whenever I can if somebody says, where are you from? I do not say I'm from Washington, D.C., though I have lived there for 43 of my 64 years at this point. Arizona's a part-time thing. I love it. And part of the reason I love it is because there's so many damn Chicagoans here.
1: Yeah, I'm one of them. No. You
2: know we're all over the place.
1: Well, we're going to have to break some bread one place or one place or the other. But I want you to know that the but uh, that Chicago and the south side of Chicago is proud of you. So That means a lot. A great pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Michael.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.